Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Antonia and Matt to talk about Industry 4.0 and figure out what it means for manufacturing. And we're doing this as part of a special episode for the Nuclear Institute's Cumbria branch. Antonia, what is your interest in Industry 4.0 given your background in engineering, sustainability and the energy industry? Now and then we get new terms, particularly marketing, sometimes likes to come up with things. But I think, you know, it's interesting to see we are sort of changing the way we are doing things in industry and manufacturing and sort of how that progresses towards uh, the future. So in my job as an energy manager, we see a lot of data and we're sort of getting smarter with how we use data and also we just have more data available to base decisions on and trying to optimize energy and reduce waste. So it will definitely be really important going forward. Cool. So I got out of that. Marketing people say things and then you do stuff with data. <laughs> I might have a bias against marketing, but it's because in sustainability, I see new terminology. And when I dig into it, I think that sounds similar to what I've come across before. Why do we have a new word for it? Is it the same thing? Is it something different? Or people just using a word that means one thing and then just using it in another way and I disagree with it. Yeah, Industry 4.0 is kind of like a catch-all for lots of different technologies from what I've found. And I guess we'll get into that in a little bit and sort of try and define what is this thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Matt, I know you work in the nuclear industry and I think you'll probably have a different motivation for learning about Industry 4.0 compared to Antonia. Yeah, so for me, it's very much how can we use all these different technologies, um, sources of information to both optimise how we operate and run nuclear facilities and take them down, decommission them, and how we can do that in a cost-effective way, particularly minimising the risk to personnel by doing it cleverer quicker cheaper but at the same time how we marry up all those potential benefits with uh, often significant cybersecurity considerations as you get more data out there data is a security risk and how do we balance off the two which is a, an interesting question i think yes there's an awful lot going on in there that we need to unpack so you talked about not just cyber security but also like managing things and reducing risk and making things safer and doing things more efficiently i can see that that's part of what industry 4.0 would do but i can also see that it would create a lot of work because it's about changing how an industry that's been around for what 70 years now yep it's changing how you guys do things compared to what you've always done from going back to the 1950s absolutely and as anyone listening who works in the industry will understand we have a tendency to try and keep things simple and proven and as we move into uh, industry 4.0 and the opportunities and technologies that brings with it it's all very much new stuff new technology which brings with it its own challenges for our people yeah I have some understanding of what that entails. How do you prove that you're still doing it as safely and as correctly as you were doing it previously, given the 70 years of knowledge you've accumulated? And equally, people are used to doing something a certain way and we're asking them to do 
something different to how they've always done it. You'll have seen films and the likes that talk about the fear of the unknown, and this is very much a fear of the unknown because of the risk that comes with moving into that new territory. I come across this as well in my job. I think it's less uh, conservative in that sense because the safety around nuclear is both to people and also national security. But I definitely have come across trying to change the way things are done on a manufacturing site. There's some cases where they have really old piece of kit and if they turn it off, it might not start up again because it, it just has to keep running and that's all they've ever done. I started using data to put a cost to it so they can kind of weigh up the benefit of keep using that piece of kit for whatever process or to abandon it, maybe replace it. And I feel there's something more fundamental in there. Like, for example, I don't want to change that I walk to the shops because it's the way I've always walked. Why would I walk a different route? I like doing what I've done. I can think of loads of things in my own life where I don't want to change what I'm doing. I don't want to buy a new smartphone because I have to relearn how to use it. And this one might be starting to break. I've broken the screen <laughs> several times, but I'm now proud of the fact that I've been using a broken phone for two years. Wow. It reduces my waste footprint, right? I don't have to buy a new phone and there's quite a lot of uh, environmental costs associated with buying new electronics. Yes. So it's slightly broken, but it still works. So I'm going to keep using it. I quite like trying new things. I do like going, oh, well, I've been down this road. I want to see what's the other road like. And it's just a really small, minor change and probably looks like the other road. But I've just got to find out. There's that learning curve, isn't there? Like, so I think an example of technology that I think is easy to adopt is uh, chip and pin for paying for things using your card. I had no problem picking that up because it made things easier. And I was also, you know, there were lots of things around me that were using it and it was just sort of natural to progress that way. But having to go out and buy a new thing because I've broken the old thing and then learn how to use that doesn't appeal to me. Mm. We should probably define what Industry 4.0 is. I supervised some master's students last year that were working on this and one of them said to me that there are over 100 definitions of Industry 4.0. Wow. Yeah. Oh to which I said, <laughs> well, for the purposes of your dissertation... Please define what it is succinctly. How are you going to use that definition? So, Antonia, you said you found people kept mentioning things that seemed relevant to you. Did you come up with a good definition of Industry 4.0? I think there's common themes that I'd say fit into the definition, but uh, maybe it also is a... You have to understand what's the difference between 4.0 and the industrial revolutions that preceded it. I guess some of the key themes I saw were big data another word to define what is big data rather than just normal data cloud computing autonomous automation as opposed to regular automation so we're going to define this buzzword using other buzzwords yeah it's a collection of buzzwords (laughs) (laughs) i think we alluded to this earlier it is a, a collection of sort of new technologies When I was reading up on it, it was talking about things like Internet of Things, which is a a great undefined uh, waffle of what's things. So you've got an internet and you've got things and I'm still stuck a little bit in the early 2000s, despite being somewhat techno friendly, but having things in your house like your smart lights and your smart fridge and your smart washing machine sort of comes to internet of things. 
all those sorts of things in an industrial set and having loads of processors that will talk to each other and control each other, which certainly, uh, as an engineer, appeals for some modern chemical facilities because you can control them autonomously uh, with minimal human interaction oil and gas refineries being a good example of that where you've got miles and miles of plant to run and you can do it all from one control room with oversight from a person and i know that security is really important to that as well because you know if you are transmitting how a a plant runs and if it is critical then you don't want someone to be able to hack into it or hold your data or controls hostage i know some facilities that haven't adopted remote controls because it's a security risk for them so they control it on site so during covid that was not really an option (laughs) for them to operate from there or they operate on their own rather than sending it home i feel like you've just set out a plot point for like several different action movies (laughs) where some some hostile entity takes over some industrial plant either by controlling its autonomous features or putting a load of people in there Or maybe churning out something nefarious for their own devices, but they're doing it remotely. You don't know why there are penguins just popping up out of your (laughs) plastic machine, spamming penguins through your extruders, and you're like, why penguins? (laughs) Almost sounds like the... uh unwritten plot feature of the terminator series how to build a load of t100s autonomously and remotely (laughs) and then they can build themselves (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the definition that my student came up with was intelligence through digital technology quite a nice succinct phrase they were talking about it was um instantaneous communication between machines i think matt you alluded to yep and um having a flexibility in being able to do updates in real time. So I was saying the Terminator machines can sort of build themselves. Machines can kind of look at, back at themselves and say, oh, well, I can improve that by doing this. Now I've collected all these this data and I've analysed it. I know that this is the next thing to do to improve further. So it's this kind of big feedback mechanism where things can make themselves smarter. That also sounds like the start of a film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a good sci-fi film that covers that somewhere. Yeah. But talking about autonomously being able to improve something, that is where it differs from our current industrial uh, revolution, the digital age, because we have programs and controllers that can react to things, but only if we've set the parameters. So say, you know, we've set a level alarm. If the level goes above this, you send an alarm and you might stop filling that tank. But without us telling that, it wouldn't have known to stop filling the tank. It only knows that because we told it to. (laughs) So I guess the next step would be for it to know what level means and what it should do in that case. Mm, It doesn't need to adjust that maximum level based on some other data from elsewhere in the plant. Yeah. (laughs) The plant. (laughs) I feel like we should be careful with that word. (laughs) Manufacturing floor, I think you said, before we started this recording, Antonio. Yeah. Or even factory shop, shop floor. Oh, yeah. And it's the fourth industrial revolution because there have been three others, although we we only tend to talk about one. Antonio, you mentioned the last one was sort of um, automation and the inclusion the ability to use electronics to do things. Mm. And some definitions also say it involves the age of nuclear energy and space exploration and renewable energy sources. Quite a lot of the definitions seem to go back to energy sources. I don't know if you've come across that, Antonia, working in the energy industry. Ironically not. I don't know if that's because I I just blanked it and overlooked it because I didn't I thought, yeah, duh, we need renewable energy. Maybe they're maybe they're coming at 
industry 4.0 from a different slant. You know, and energy is still electricity coming through cables and, and, and whatnot. Yeah, you're not going to get more energy or more electricity out of a thing. And how many more sources do we need? The first revolution was mechanisation at the end of the 18th century, just for completeness of the picture there. And the second one was about mass production and also new sources of energy. I suppose some of the old definitions of the industries did include sort of us discovering coal and then turning steam and electricity. So, okay, fair enough. Maybe there was a reason for this. I'm just backpedaling, <laughs> just backpedaling as, as I learn more information. Put the facts together. So yeah, mechanisation kind of went hand in hand with steam power and then mass production seemed to come along at the same time as electricity being a thing and then gas and oil being sources as well. So you can have like internal combustion engines, things like that. That is probably the most rambling history of the different industrial revolutions anyone's ever come across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not a history podcast, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've sort of figured out what they are, I guess the question is, well, what does industry 4.0 mean for which industries? What are we talking about here? So we've obviously got the energy industry that you both work in to some extent. But I also wonder if we're talking about intelligent use of data, what does that mean for things like farming, transport or construction projects in general? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's linking all that data together. And you know, for you know, farming is probably a good example. You tend to think of it as traditional tractors and the likes, but if you start to automate and network, instead of having person on tractor driving around, you suddenly have a a load of robotic autonomous devices going around. I reflect back a little bit on um, last summer, I I had the opportunity to go to a local winery um, in Norfolk where my parents live, and uh, they were talking there about how they hand... um, tend all the vines because they do that because it's better than doing it in a automated fashion with machines going down as, and mass producing but there's a, a third option here with autonomous devices in that you can simulate what the people do sort of the hands-on type effect with large numbers of automated devices that take that feedback just the idea of like loads of autonomous machines in in a field i think it could easily become bumper cars if they didn't have that feedback of where everyone else Mm. is so i've seen online some you know smart warehouses where they have uh, grocery picking and they use robots that have clever plotting of where everything is but also plotting where other machines are so they don't collide yeah i imagine everything's going to kind of become like that if we do go down that way yeah i also imagine that you, so if you've got ai predicting the weather and you fed that into your your model of your farm you can figure out when is best to sow seeds when is best to do a harvest you can have sensors in the soil detecting different nutrient levels or looking at what bacteria are doing in the soil in control if you wanted to control things much more carefully than we currently do now there might be an argument to not do that because you could say that might harm biodiversity. Maybe you feed that into your model. But it could be useful rather than looking at the symptoms, you actually can see the root cause of <laughs> root cause of why might your plant become plant I can't work I can't talk now. <laughs> I should not have introduced the topic of farming, should I? <laughs> no, um no, it's fine. Um it's back on track. You could actually see why might these plants potentially yellow before they do because you've got sensors on nutrient level, water level, 
it could solve it before it, it becomes a problem. So, yeah, more data could be uh, very powerful. And, and equally allow you to control some of the biodiversity for the betterment of both the wider plant and uh, animal life and, and indeed the crop yields. So if you could farm more efficiently, there'd be more land available that you wouldn't necessarily manage. Yeah, and you, you might introduce more bees, for example, which can then pollinate the crops better. Yeah, and have sensors measuring what the bees do. How far do you take this, is what I'm thinking. Do you control all of nature, or do you draw a limit? Very good point. So having had some wild speculation about what can farming do, I think we should maybe bring it a bit more back down to earth. And uh, Matt, could you tell us a bit more about what's going on in the nuclear industry? We're starting to introduce um, various autonomous uh, devices for surveillance of facilities. So uh, areas that aren't easily accessible by people so we're starting to deploy things like the spot the dog that you probably will see into uh, non-accessible areas send them in do surveys and um, get an understanding of the area uh, and that's then allowing us to formulate virtual reality um, environments so we can understand how we can decommission facilities in a safe and effective manner and also cost-effective manner so we're looking at it from all angles there then i think there's some interesting questions of where do we take that next could we start using this data to formulate the decommissioning strategy for the plant or building or facility that says your most efficient way of taking it down is to do this this and this and you can do that using those tools that then take that feedback as you start to decommission there's also all the data that we collect around operations of the plant uh, or chemical facilities that then allow us to, <laughs> to uh, control those facilities. It's then taking that balance of how do we do that with the cybersecurity envelope and trying to work through both of those, especially as uh, we look at technology advancing and it's becoming more smart in terms of the equipment and less dumb. I'll feed that in as the technical terms there, smart and dumb instrumentation. <laughs> So at the minute, it's very much about going into an area that people maybe wouldn't tend to go into because it'd be a bit more hazardous and then bringing that information back for later processing. And being able to build up virtual reality environments uh, are those places that people probably have not gone for 50 or 60 years so that they can understand what those areas look like and, and then you can formulate how you get into those areas and take them apart. Doesn't that sound quite fantastic that there are places that people have built that they haven't been into in such a long time and now there's kind of this this impetus to do it so that we can sort of i want to i was going to say start again but that's not quite right sort of evolve the industry yeah. and improve what started out 70 years ago so there'll be a birth of a brand new nuclear industry that's really smart and automated and lean and has all these buzzwords mm -hmm. absolutely and move on from some areas that were very much post-Second World War era facilities and cutting edge and modern at the time, which by today's standards have very much shown their age. I mean, this sounds really obvious maybe to someone in the industry, but how does it become so outdated? Like, why would it not be updated in the first place to make sure it's on that edge? Because nuclear was such a leading technology. Why is there the trope that the industry is decades behind? most of it if not all of it is um because we have something that is proven to work it's proven to be safe in its working and to make the justification that 
the new thing is safe takes a lot of work to prove the same levels of safety or better levels of safety. And we do evolve some stuff, but it's a slow process to get that done. So we try and stick as far as we can with what's proven and known. There's a balance in there as well because of the level of um, review we have to go to to prove those technologies. That takes a lot of money, a lot of resources to do that from a taxpayer cost efficiency point of view in the uh, decommissioning sector particularly. We're trying to optimise what we do to give best value to the taxpayer. So we wouldn't want to necessarily go and upgrade everything um, because it very much feeds into some of the discussions that we do see on nuclear of it's so expensive and part of the reason for it being so expensive when you're talking particularly new build reactors for example is because those designs have been continuously evolved and updated so if you look at the power programs of previous generations the magnox reactors are a great example of this no two magnox reactor stations pretty much are identical every design was different that's because we were evolving the designs as we built them but the difficulty with that is that then because those designs evolved as we built them the cost changed each time you got first of uh, a type cost with every single reactor Hinkley Point C today is probably another good example. The costs of that are relatively high. If and when Sizewell C is built, that will be cheaper than Hinkley Point C because it will not be a first of a kind. So these are the two new reactors that are either being built or are about to be built that this is going to kick off this new renaissance of the nuclear industry. Absolutely. Hinkley C will be designing out many of the challenges that size will be will then already have ironed out as it goes in the construction and i also suspect that the original reactors the, the, the fleet that sort of i think building finished in was it the 70s or 80s probably the agr fleet so second generation i suspect they may not have been built with decommissioning in mind they were just thinking about power production and then the industry said well hang on a second we need to take these things apart at some point so if we're going to build new ones we should think about that now Yep. They might run for a hundred years, maybe, seeing as the current fleets run for sort of fifty or sixty, yeah. and new ones you'd think could be running for longer. Absolutely, and uh, that's very much reminiscent of all the challenges we've got at Sellafield. Is that all of those facilities were built in the post-war era? Some of them were built for military purposes. Decommissioning was not a consideration, and even as we start to get into the early power generation fleet, the Magnox and AGR reactors, absolutely. The thought was how do we get them generating electricity and not how do we take them apart? Sizewell B is probably the only reactor that was designed explicitly with the thoughts of decommissioning in mind, and that's because it's the newest one on the grid. Most of what I've done with the nuclear industry has been about decommissioning and waste management and doing things in this like really holistic approach. Um, I know Industry 4.0 is something government is interested in, for the, the nuclear industry in particular, because you've got all of these huge technical specialists working on different aspects of the nuclear industry, and you need to have that holistic view of it. And Industry 4.0 can really help there, where you sort of you collect all these data sets, and you have all these sensors where you might never have had sensors before, and you learn more about the power plant that you're running with this incredibly long view in mind. 
especially bearing in mind if they are going to run for 100 years, you need to have some way of retaining knowledge and digitization can help with that. So there's this this kind of grand plan to have all of these bits of technology talking to each other without compromising security, which will be a real challenge, I think. Data management is, is super important because sometimes I go somewhere and I say, okay, how does this piece of equipment run compared to what it was specified and designed for? And it won't have been very long, five, ten years, and they'll go, I don't know. I can only imagine the scale that that happens in the nuclear industry if there wasn't this record keeping would be even bigger because it runs for decades, even almost lifetimes. You know, you can't have, you can't, you won't even have the same engineers working there. The other big challenge with data management, we see it even now with our IT systems that we're using here, here and now. The IT moves on at such a pace that it's hard to keep up. Data formats change, software applications change, the underpinning um, operating systems change. And what we were running five, ten years ago isn't compatible now with what we run today. Ah, yeah. I'm waiting for my ten-year-old computer to decide that Windows will not support it anymore. (laughs) I'm already at the point where Windows is saying, you know, this is quite slow, right? (laughs) You won't be able to upgrade to the next iteration of Windows. Yeah, I know. But again, electronic <laughs> waste. Yeah, I, I, I was reading something the other day, Microsoft uh, Windows 10, which most of us are probably running now, and that goes out support in a couple of years. With some of the big projects in industry, the lead time to get, say, a new operating system-based software package um, in can be nearly as long as the uh, lifespan of that operating system. So you're just bringing it in as that operating system goes out of support by the manufacturer. Wow, so the first challenge for the nuclear industry is to find a more streamlined way to bring in software or go all in-house and just have your own software. Uh, that, that have some benefits, but equally it brings its own challenges. So you've still got hardware compatibility as hardware standards change. So would your underlying Linux system run on today's AMD chips, for example, or Intel chips? And would it run on the ones in five years' time while the software is still compatible with the operating system? That's a fair point. You're not going to bring it all in-house, I guess, and technology seems to be evolving at a faster and faster rate. Yeah. Is that something you come across, Antonia, in your sector? And do you have any other good examples? You mentioned big data earlier on and said, well, what do we mean by big data? Yeah, I was I was um, thinking about this and, and sort of started looking around. IBM found this interesting stat that one terabyte of production data is created daily by the average factory, but less than 1% is analysed. And for sure, I think that can definitely happen because at the moment, the way we operate things is we try to keep it running. And so you have controls, And that does have information, it processes it and thinks, okay, because it it wants this target, it will adjust these, you know, open these valves to achieve that. But we we don't tap into that data because we know the temperature. So we actually can infer other things from it, such as, you know, how much energy is being used there. So um, definitely I see this now where, you know, we get, building management systems or BMS or plant controls having also monitoring systems so you can 
understand how energy is being used and then or, or controlled and then take from that actions to reduce it and make it more efficient um so it's definitely on the rise and then eventually you might get systems which can decide that for themselves but at the moment it's still semi-manual where you've got the data collecting but who who looks at it and who chooses what to do with it Mm. yeah that's one of the things um that i've come across a few years ago i helped edit a peer-reviewed paper about the use of digital twin as an example use case for the nuclear industry so someone had created a framework that could be used to make a digital twin of a nuclear power plant say i'm gonna have to define what digital twin is i know and they were talking about all these different things and how yes you you probably will want people interacting with it at some point but you can sort of choose when that is and optimize it and the the framework they came up with on their test cases made it a lot more efficient without sacrificing accuracy of um, the part of the plant that it was modeling um, so when I say a digital twin, there's also <laughs> some contention around what the definition of a digital twin is. <laughs> <laughs> and some, some say you need to go and model every single atom in your object or device or manufacturing plant or whatever it is. Some say that's unnecessary. That's a ridiculous amount of data. You don't need to go to that level. <laughs> I agree. But what yes. what is the information that you need and how do you need to use it? And there are different ways of designing the digital twin to do what you need and no more than that so when you're talking about a terabyte of data generated a day from a manufacturing plant but you can infer things from just the temperature say that suggests you don't necessarily need to collect all of that data and analyze it if the temperature tells you something else about what's going on in the plant then fair enough so it was about digitizing intelligence or experience gained by people as well for me almost again going back to science versus engineering i feel like a scientist would say we need to understand how every atom works we need to understand the underlying theory about why it does that and then engineer would go well i observed this so i'm going to create this correlation and this is how it operates so now we know how to predict it we don't know why it just does it <laughs> and it, it's just so i'll learn from experience and go well this is the end result so we'll just use that <laughs> and, and as i'll often chime in with, with things like that and go well we, we've done 90 percent of the work we're reasonably sure this is how it does something that's good enough <laughs> I, I don't need 100 percent certainty 90 percent, along with intuition and uh, experience is good enough for me to make a decision. Oh, and I'm a scientist in the room full of engineers saying, <laughs> I want to know what you want to do. <laughs> but that's why I'm, part of it is about digitising that experience, as you say. So somewhere someone will have written, well, the reason that we're doing this with the data over here is because when we looked at the atoms, it told us this. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I guess difference between a purist wanting to understand why something does something um, of, against uh, a practical person that thinks, yeah, I, I know enough, I'll get on to the next thing that I need to sort. Yeah, you do kind of have to really weigh your priorities and what's where's the next fire that I need to fight? And hopefully at some point, Industry 4.0 will be doing a lot of this stuff for us. And then who knows what we might have time to focus on. What I was thinking about, what would I want from Industry 4.0 in my own life? I want a house that maintains itself. <laughs> it knows that the render on the wall is starting to fall off outside. 
And it also knows, because it's been connected to the internet, and it's been keeping track of the latest advancements, it knows what to buy. <laughs> it's mad, oh right? <laughs> to have really fancy new render that will last longer and be more weatherproof and keep my house warmer because it's waterproof and the walls don't get as damp. But there is also this argument about AI, artificial intelligence, but it's created by us to start with. So we already have our own bias. So what if you get the wall render AI program that only looks at a certain brand of render and actually they just promote whatever they want you to buy and actually it might not be the best because it's not got that whole data set. So you're almost at the mercy of whoever makes that program or AI. Fair enough. I like how when we get to the speculation of what would I want in my life, I'm the one that comes up with something really altruistic and the engineer is like, <laughs> but what about this really practical thing that humans do? <laughs> Money makes the world turn. Yeah, there was a, an advert for, was it a washing machine that had a button that it would automatically buy detergent, but it would only buy a particular <laughs> brand of detergent. Oh. Just that looked at it and thought, I don't want that. I'd like to have the options and do a bit of research into it and decide what I want. But when it comes to house maintenance, that's a little bit more outside of my expertise and I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time looking into all these technologies. I just want my house to buy the stuff and get some robots in to do the work. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind as a self-cleaning house. And that's your limit. It's not allowed to buy any cleaning products, though. Do you have to restock it? Maybe it gives me an alert that it's out, and then I can choose from my... Unless I set my own favourites, you know, then I've made a choice about which ones I wanted to begin with. Yeah, so you're going with the, the human intervention side of... Industry 4.0, you want to interact with it. I just want it to get stuff done. I guess I want it to do the boring stuff and then I still have control. Fair enough. The idea is it it frees you up to do other things, right? Yeah. And you can have as much control as you want or don't want. Yeah, you can have different models of it. Why not? Possibly a good example of Industry 4.0 that is becoming realised now. It's probably self-driving cars. Cars anyway have way more sensors than they used to, right? It always tells us when the tyre pressure's getting low. Didn't tell us that there was a nail in the tyre. <laughs> <laughs> so you still need to do your checks. You still need to check tread. <laughs> but it's getting there, right? And I would quite like a self-driving car as well, because I don't enjoy driving. I also wouldn't mind, because, again, it frees us up to do something else. Exactly. You can you can do some work or sit and read a book or have a nap. <laughs> At least once uh, we get over the whole who's in control of the car question. Yeah, and we sort of mentioned this in our future driving episode. Like, do you set it up? Like, if it's in some sort of three-way collision, what makes a decision about who to protect? Yeah. On Cumbrian roads, how does it even know where the edge of the road is? Mm. How does it know where to scooch into a hedge <laughs> to pass an oncoming car because the road isn't wide enough? But they're really tangible examples of seeing how the technology can evolve and help us and what Industry 4.0 is. Yeah. Um. I don't think I ever defined what big data was. Oh yeah, we got distracted in the final few minutes. Did you have a definition of it? Well, big data was the difference between data, regular, and having lots of data quickly generated and processed. Again, it doesn't really define how much is a lot, but you just know if you have a lot, then it's big data. <laughs> I guess if you've had a sudden I guess, step change in how much data you're producing or how much you need, 
it's much bigger than before. It's not an incremental change. This is a huge leap. Maybe this is my engineer's understanding of big data. <laughs> Simplified. Yeah, whereas a scientist would come up with a definite number and an error. <laughs> hey, there's an error in engineering as well. It's just a very big error. Yeah, tolerance. I agree with that. <laughs> we agree on something. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it. We're just kind of trying to come up with definitions that don't really exist, which sums up Industry 4.0 quite well, I think. So hopefully, if you're still listening to this, you've gained some insight into what Industry 4.0 is beyond it being a bit of a woolly definition of something. So I think that's a good point to draw the conversation to a close, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.